Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. I encourage you to join me, if you will, in the 17th chapter of John's Gospel this morning. And I want to read verses 16 to 19 as we think about the subject sanctified by the truth. John chapter 17, of course, is Jesus' high priestly prayer. And he prays in the 16th verse, talking about his followers, his disciples. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. This morning we want to try to develop the main point that God's special revelation in Scripture is the indispensable means of spiritual growth in the life of the child of God. God's Word plays a critical role in sanctification. In fact, the key to sanctification is to know and to follow the truth. Now, far and away, I think we would agree the dominant philosophy in our popular culture is relativism. It's the idea that there is no objective standard. There is no right or wrong. There is no absolute truth. That seems to be fairly common philosophy today. In the next chapter of John's Gospel, we see that Pontius Pilate probably had adopted that view. Listen to him in John 18, verse 37, when he said to Jesus, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. And listen to Pilate's response. Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews. Notice he didn't stay around for the answer. The fact that Pilate said, What is truth? Jesus said, I've come to bear witness unto the truth. And everyone who is of the truth heareth my voice. And Pontius Pilate said, uh, Can you even determine Truth. Now that's the attitude or the mindset of the relativist. The person who says all is relative, there is no absolute standard. And we see that idea played out today, not only in our popular culture, but I suggest even in many large and popular Christian churches in the modern world. There seems to be an attempt in many churches today to mimic cultural trends. The world adopts a view and Christians say, well, we've got to implement that and integrate that into our thinking as well. The church largely apes the world in many respects. And this inevitably leads to a largely superficial focus on programs and activities and emotional experiences and a desire to be culturally relevant and accepted. We see that in many quote-unquote Christian churches today. I call it the gospel according to Oprah. <laughs> Oprah says, you speak your truth, 
and I will speak my truth. We may not agree, but your truth is important to you. My truth is important to me. But there is no such thing as the truth. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. But notice our text says, sanctify them through thy truth. Now, Jesus is talking to his Father. And it's God's truth that is more important than your truth or my truth. It's God's truth. You say, well, where can I find God's truth? Jesus goes on to say, thy word is truth. So I want to make a couple of major points this morning. The first one is that the truth is indispensable. Again, we're living in a world that devalues the importance of truth and says really that there's no way to figure out any one truth, that everybody has their own opinions about it. That's the popular mindset today. But Jesus says there's such a thing as God's truth. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And that truth, my beloved, is indispensable. It's non-negotiable. So the first affirmation I want to make under this heading is that there is such a thing as the truth. Listen to John 8.32. Jesus says, If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Jesus says that in the path of discipleship following me, you will know the truth. And I believe if you are seeking truth today, the best way to find it is to start following Jesus because it's in the path of following Christ that he says you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. There's a liberty, there's a freedom, there's a wonderful deliverance in knowing the truth. Now I've experienced that in my own life. Have you? I'm free from many anxieties that other people seem to be concerned about. That's not to say I don't have my share of anxieties, but I suggest that every time I go back to the truth and remind myself of the truth, it delivers my mind from worry and care and many fears in this world. The fear of death. You know, death is a very frightening prospect to each of us, but you know what delivers me? and makes me free from the fear of death when I hear the truth that Jesus Christ came out of the grave and conquered death in his resurrection. And that because he lives, we shall live also. When I learn what the truth says about absence from the body is to be present or at home with the Lord. Heaven is home. And death is not the cessation of existence. It's not the end but death is simply, for the child of God, a passageway into that heavenly day where the sun will never set and every moment will be better than the previous one. It's a day of glory and eternal bliss. Now, the truth delivers me from fear. You know, I look at the world around me and I see all of the problems going on and sometimes I get pretty upset about it. But, you know, to remember that the Lord is on the throne, the truth of the sovereignty of God, it saves me from fear and worry and anxiety. So that's just a simple illustration of how the truth will set you free. May I say the truth of the gospel, that salvation is by grace, by God's work, and he gets all the glory for it. Man does not cooperate in his own salvation. That truth, my friends, has delivered me 
from many a sleepless night. Did you know that I have never stayed awake all night tossing and turning, worrying about the eternal condition of one of my loved ones? I know that's in God's hands. And I'm so glad it's in his hands and not in mine because I'd sure mess it up. But he's never made a mistake. And the truth sets you free. So Jesus says there's such thing as the truth. In fact, he said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, Jesus is truth incarnate. I am the truth. That's exactly what John 1, 14 means when it says that the word which was made flesh dwelt among us, and he was full of grace and truth. And by the way, the Holy Spirit is called the spirit of truth in John's gospel. When the spirit of truth is come, and that means that he traffics in truth. The Holy Spirit uses the truth. And the Holy Spirit teaches the truth. So when I say that there is such a thing as the truth, I think it's important to make three important points. Number one, that truth is defined by God's revelation in Scripture. If you want to know how to codify the truth, it's not one man's opinion or another man's idea, but it's laid out in the Word of God. As our text says, thy word is truth. Ephesians 1.13 and 2 Corinthians 6.7 both call the Bible the word of truth. The word of truth. And by the way, that means that everything contrary to the Bible, to God's word, is the lie. Listen to our Lord himself a few chapters earlier in John 8, 44, when he said to some Pharisees, why do you not understand my speech? Even because you cannot hear my word. He's talking about his preaching the word of God. And then he says, ye are of your father, the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. He said, if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not because you're not of God. Now, what Jesus is telling us here is that if God's word is true, who is the chief opponent of God's word? Well, historically, the old serpent is the first one to question God's word in the Garden of Eden. Do you remember? Yea, hath God said. And he's been trying to undermine this book. And the truth of God as revealed in Holy Scripture. He's been trying to undermine it all through human history. And that means that everything that is not according to thus saith the word of God is the lie. Now, so many people in our fallen world believe the lie instead of believing the truth. So many have been caught up in the theory of evolution that everything that came about came about as a big giant explosion by random chance and over millions and millions of years it has developed into its current state of order and rationality. I, I dare say that's the ultimate irrational view, evolution, and it's the lie. And so many people believe it because they have turned away from God's truth as revealed in Scripture. The point I'm emphasizing at this moment is that there is such a thing as the truth, and that truth is revealed in Holy Scripture. And embracing the opposite of Scripture is the way of our fallen world. 
Romans 1.25 describes a depraved society in these terms. They changed the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. Isn't that pretty indicative of what we see going on around us? They changed the truth of God into a lie. We see it in the popular issues that are being debated today, and we see it all around us in the way many people think. And you say, what possibly has gone wrong in our world? Well, I'll tell you what's gone wrong. They held down the truth that God has revealed in his world, in creation, and in his word, both in general revelation and in special revelation, because man by nature does not want to hear that, and he embraces the opposite of that, God turns them over to a reprobate mind. And a reprobate mind is moral insanity. A reprobate mind is somebody who can't even distinguish right from wrong, truth from error, good from evil anymore, and it's all around us. We see people promoting ideas that are just mind-boggling, I mean, maybe they're not to you, but they are to me. They're just, it boggles my mind that anybody could say that light is dark and dark is light and good is bad and bad is good. It just boggles the mind. It's because they're morally insane. They've been turned over to a reprobate. That's a moral judgment, mind, moral insanity. So God's truth is set in contrast to the way that people naturally think in their fallen state. Paul tells Timothy that in the last days you keep preaching the word. He didn't say accommodate the culture. He didn't say jump on the bandwagon of movements and fads and popular ideas. He says you keep preaching the old, old truth because he says the time will come when men will not endure sound doctrine, but they shall turn away their ears from the truth and they shall be turned unto fable. So where do you go to find the truth? They say, well, I go to the New York Times, or I go to CBS, NBC, ABC, or CNN, or Fox. I'll tell you, if you want to find the truth, my friends, go to the Word of God, because thy word is truth. Psalm 119 says, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. And he said, thy word is true from the beginning. So God's word is truth. And I want to add another affirmation to this thought, and that is that the gospel of the Lord... Now, you know God's word is this book. It's the Old and New Testament. But the gospel is the message of Christ crucified, right? The gospel, the good news, and that is a portion of this book. In fact, it's the main theme of this book. It's what the Old Testament looks forward to and what the New Testament explains. But the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is the consummate expression of divine truth. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 5, the Apostle Paul says, We heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have to all the saints. For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you heard before, in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you, as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit, as it doth also in you since the day you heard of it and knew the grace of God in truth. Now notice that little expression, since the day you knew the grace of God in truth. Now there are a lot of people who say, I believe in grace, salvation's by grace, and they sing amazing grace. But I suggest that by the time they explain 
all of the ifs, ands, and buts with grace. There's not much grace left in it. You know what grace is? It's unmerited favor. It's God's blessing on those who have earned the very opposite. It's God doing the work and man being the beneficiary. Grace means salvation is of the Lord. And many people that sing and talk about grace, I suggest, are mixing grace and works. And Paul tells us in Romans eleven six that those two are mutually exclusive. They don't mix. If it's of grace, it's no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. And if it's of works, it's there's no grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. The very definition of the term suggests that grace and works are as opposite as oil and water. They don't mix. And so Paul talks to the Colossians and he says, you knew the grace of God in truth. Is it possible to believe in grace, but yet that belief is still colored by or skewed by an idea of legalism or the, or the works of the law. Absolutely. Many people today say you don't have to do anything in order to go to heaven except you've got to believe. Well, I never understood how folks can't see the contradiction in that state. You don't have to do anything except believe. Salvation's free, not of works. Well, what's a work? Something you do, right? By the time a person uses a language like that, I'll tell you, it trips my mental circuit breakers because uh, belief is a work. Repentance is a work. Baptism's a work, you see. So the apostle says that you knew the grace of God in truth. What is the message of divine and sovereign grace in truth? What is the true message of sovereign grace? It is that man is totally depraved. He can't help himself. He can't rescue himself. His will is fallen. His mind is fallen. His affections are fallen from a relationship with God. This man is in a desperate and hopeless condition unless he's acted upon from a power that's greater than him. And God made plans before the world began to do that. He loved a people. He looked down through time before the foundation of the world. God saw humanity and he saw the objects of his love and he determined to choose them to be his own people. That's the doctrine of election. And he predestinated them to finally live with him in heaven, to be put into his family and to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And then Jesus came in the fullness of the time and he died for that people, for that very people. He laid his life down, the good shepherd did, for the sheep that were given to him by the Father. And through his redemptive work on the cross, salvation was accomplished. And then the Holy Spirit comes and applies it to the individual directly and immediately. At some point between conception and death, so that everyone that the Father loved and the Son redeemed will be called and quickened by the work of the Holy Spirit. And then every last one of them is preserved and eternally secure in the love of God, in the power of God, so that when Jesus comes back the second time and the resurrection occurs, he will present the entire redeemed throng to the Father with these words, Behold, I and the children which thou hast given me. Not most of the children, not 90% of the children, but every last one that was given to him by the Father before the world began will be presented home and safe at last, and we'll spend eternity together, the entire redeemed throng, singing, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive glory and honor and power and blessing and majesty. Now, my beloved, that's the message of God's grace in truth. That's the true message. 
And I'm as convinced of that as the fact that I'm standing here <laughs> this morning. Now you say, well, I'm not, Brother Mike. Well, then I pray that uh, you will be brought to know the grace of God in truth. Truth matters, my friends, and it is revealed in Scripture. This book is God's truth, and then it is consummately expressed. It is crystallized, and the ultimate summary of it is what happened at the cross and what God has done to save sinners. And by the way, that's why in Galatians, when Paul talks about these folks who have embraced another gospel, which is not the gospel. He says, they say they believe the gospel, but he said it's really another gospel. It's not the true gospel. It's because they're trying to add the deeds of the law to the work of Christ. And listen to what he says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 5. He says, to whom we gave place, these legalist teachers that were teaching that you have to um, add something to the work of Christ. He says, we gave place to them Know not for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Then in the next chapter, chapter 3, verse 1, he says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? Now he said, it's like you're under a spell. It's like you're not thinking straight. It's like somebody has, you know, put a hex on you. Who hath bewitched you? He says, I don't understand. He said, it's mind-boggling to me that you've shifted gears and switched lanes. So quickly, he said, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. Then in Galatians 5, 7, he says again, you did run well. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? Now, the gospel then is the consummate expression of divine truth. And then the third thing I want to say, I've said there is such a thing as the truth. That truth is revealed in the Word of God. The gospel is the consummate expression of divine truth. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ exists to uphold and perpetuate the truth. In 1 Timothy 3.15, the Apostle Paul says to the young preacher, I have written these things to you that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, notice these two images. A pillar, that's an architectural image, and the ground, that's an agricultural image. I drove over a bridge into New Orleans, I think, one time. You may have been on it before, and the report is that the pilings on that bridge, the pillars, are some of them, are not fastened on anything. Some of them are just floating in the water. And I don't know how true that is, but I mean, it's possible. Of course, you'd have to have somewhere along that span, that span, you'd have to have something fastened to the ground. But a pillar and a ground, you know, a pillar that's just sort of floating kind of gives me the willies, you know. I don't know that I want to spend a lot of time driving on that bridge because if I'm going to have a support beam, I want it to be anchored in something solid. You understand what I'm saying. Well, here's what he says about the church. It is the pillar, it upholds, and it is the ground of the truth. What he means here is that the church exists to maintain and to propagate and to perpetuate God's truth in this world. Now, I don't think the big three networks, the media moguls, I don't believe that they are interested in supporting and defending and promoting God's truth. 
And I don't believe that the politicians are invested in supporting and maintaining the truth. And I sure don't believe Hollywood is interested in promoting and upholding God's truth in Scripture. And I want to tell you the church exists to do just that. Even if the world doesn't agree, the church exists to preach the truth, to explain the truth, to continue to contend earnestly for the truth, the faith that was once delivered to the saints. Truth is important. That's what we do here. What is the purpose of the church? Not to accommodate the culture, not to borrow from its ideas and its attitudes and to say, well, we're going to try to be like them. That's not why the church exists. The church exists to be a countercultural institution in this world, the one place where God's truth can be heard and promoted and propagated, even if the rest of the world has lost its mind and believed the lie. The truth is indispensable. And as an example of that, I want you to look at two little epistles in your New Testament, 2 John and 3 John. Now, these are what some have called postcard epistles. You know, some of these letters in your New Testament are several chapters long. But there are a few that are just one chapter long. Philemon, that's one chapter. Jude, one chapter. 2 and 3 John are just one chapter. So we call them postcard they're not big letters, you know, they're not written on legal pads, but they're postcards. They're just one chapter, about 300 words on average in each of these postcard epistles. Second John, listen to verses 1 through 4. The elder unto the elect lady, and I believe that's a real person, the elect lady. Some have said that this is just a title for the church in general, and that would be fine. I mean, there's some wonderful thoughts that you could glean from that, but I believe that if we take Scripture at face value, which in didactic or teaching portions like this, and it's certainly not poetic, there is no uh, hint of uh, literary form beyond just prose. It's not prophetic. There aren't images here. He's just simply writing a letter. So he calls this lady an elect lady. So I think he's writing to a particular Christian woman in the church, and he says, the elder unto the elect lady and her children. So she has children. She's a mother and has children. Is she married? Uh, well, obviously she has been at some point in the past. She has children. But um, I don't know if she is now or not. That's beside the point. But he's writing this letter to the elect lady. And what a wonderful thought that is. You're a sister here today. I want you to remember that if you have a hope in Christ, that means God chose you before the world began. You belong to him. You're part of the people of the living God. So he writes to the elect lady with her children, watch this, whom I love in the truth. Now this is not a romantic letter. It's not a love letter in a romantic sense, but it's a Christian letter. He loves her, but it's a love in the truth. By the way, there is a wonderful bond, an affection, between people of like faith, people who share a hope in the same Christ, and an understanding of the same gospel. He says, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all they that have known the truth. Now watch this. Five times in four verses, he's going to use the Greek word aletheia, which is truth. He says, I love her in the truth, and not I only, but other people who have known the truth love you in the truth. For the truth's sake, 
which dwelleth in us and shall be with us forever. Grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and in love. I rejoice greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth as we have received a commandment from the Father. The truth, the truth, the truth. I love you in the truth. Others who know the truth love you. For the truth's sake, which will be with us forever, notice the Apostle John believes that truth will endure. It will endure unchanged and unchanging. And then he says that I'm thankful to have found of your children walking in truth. Sounds like in John's mind, the truth is critical. It's indispensable. Look at the next little postcards, 3 John. 3 John, then we're right before the book of Revelation. You've got 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Jude, and then Revelation. 3 John. I said five times in four verses he mentioned the truth, Aletheia, in 2 John. In 3 John, six times in five different verses he uses this word Aletheia, the truth. Verse 1, the elder unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Now notice, again, this is not a romantic love. He's writing to a Christian brother. He actually names him Gaius. That's his name, which was a common name in certain Greek cultures. He didn't name the woman, but he calls her the elect lady. But he says the same thing to them both. I love you in the truth. And then he says, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health even as thy soul prospereth. Now, I like how he says that because that could be put in the very opposite terms. In our day, we would say to many people today, I wish your soul was in as good a health as your body. But he says, I wish your body was in as good a health as your soul. You know, most of the time, we're more interested in physical health than we are spiritual health. We ought to be interested in both, but I'll tell you which one takes priority is your soul But John is very concerned about this man's physical health. I wish above all things that you might prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospers. This man was doing good spiritually, but he needed a little extra help physically. For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. And here is the pastor's greatest joy in verse 4. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. I'll tell you, that's certainly true as a parent who's tried to train his children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. There would be no greater joy than for my children to see them following the Lord and committed to the church. What a joy that is as a parent. But you know, as a pastor, there's nothing that gives me greater peace than to see God's people trying to obey the scriptures, see them growing in grace putting Christ as preeminent in their affections and priorities and serving him with their lives and trying to live their lives in a way that would be a good testimony to others. I have no greater joy than to hear that the truth is being incarnate and personified and implemented in the lives of God's people the way they walk. You know, that passage, both 2 John and 3 John, talks about walking in the truth, knowing the truth, helping the truth. You look at 2 Thessalonians 1.10, he says we should love the truth. 1 Timothy 4.3, believe the truth. 1 Peter 1.22, obey the truth. Sounds like the truth is indispensable. I want to say next, the truth, that is the word of God, is indispensable in spiritual growth. We've tried to emphasize that the truth is important. It's 
non-negotiable, it's indispensable, it's crucial. And I want to say it's crucial for you and crucial for me. It's indispensable. There's no substitute for it in spiritual growth or practical sanctification. Listen to Jesus. Sanctify them through thy truth. What is the means of sanctification? What is the tool that the Holy Spirit uses to grow us? It's the truth. The word of God, the truth, is indispensable in spiritual growth. Sanctify them through thy truth. Now, the doctrine of sanctification, like every Bible doctrine, must be rightly divided. That's an expression 2 Timothy 2.15 talks about, rightly dividing the word of truth. So we take the truth and we properly categorize it. We see it in its different aspects and phases. That discipline is the core, the heart, the foundation of accurate biblical interpretation. If you want to interpret the Bible properly, it's important that you and I learn that these subjects like justification, sanctification, reconciliation, they have different phases. Salvation. For instance, we talk about eternal salvation. Sometimes when you read the word to save in the Bible, it's talking about the ultimate sense, being saved from hell to heaven eternally. But sometimes it's talking about being saved from many pitfalls and dangers and troubles in this world. Saved from false teaching. You want to be saved from that? I do. I don't want to get wrapped up in a cult. I don't want to be swept up to believe something that's a lie. But, you know, the old serpent out there, he's trying to blind people's minds lest the light of the glorious gospel should shine unto them and they should be saved. There is a salvation, a deliverance in knowing the truth. I think that's what Romans 10.1 is talking about. Brethren, my heart's desire prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Is he, Paul wanting them to be saved from hell to heaven? No, that's in God's hands. There's no need to pray about that because Jesus has offered the only prayer that ever needed to be offered in John 17 when he said, Father, glorify thy son that thy son also might glorify thee. It's important for us to rightly divide the word of truth. Paul says that they might be saved, for I bear them record. Here's the sense in which he wants them to be saved. Romans 10, 2. I bear them record. They have a zeal of God. Notice he didn't say a zeal for God, but this is a zeal that came from God. They have a desire in their hearts, but he says it's not according to knowledge. Zeal without knowledge is a dangerous place to be in. Now, I think we could say on the opposite side of that coin, Knowledge without zeal is a sad thing as well. But zeal without knowledge. These are people that are so zealous, they'll get up on Saturday morning and knock on your door and say, I want to share some literature with you. And there are a lot of people who will spend bunches of money to send missionaries across the seas wanting to help the Lord save souls. That's zeal, and I admire it, zeal. But my friends, it's not informed by the truth. Paul wanted them to be saved. They have a zeal of God, but it's not according to knowledge for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. They are ignorant of God's righteousness and they're going about to establish their own. They're trying to save themselves. And Paul wants them to be delivered from that. There is a gospel salvation. Now, here's the point. Sanctification like every Bible doctrine, must be rightly divided. There are different aspects to it. There's an eternal phase and there's a timely or practical phase. We might say the one is positional sanctification regarding your status and position before God. 
and the other is practical regarding how you behave and your present life right now. Now, sanctification might be defined as to be separated from sin. Now, Jesus was separated from sin. He was separate from sinners. He did not sin. Jesus lived a holy life, consecrated to God, separated from sin. But in my experience, I've had trouble being totally consecrated to God. Even my fairest and holiest of deeds seem to be tainted by bad motives. I can't seem to get away from the flesh. That's what Paul was struggling with in Romans 7 when he said, I know that in me that's in my flesh dwelleth no good thing, for when I would do good, I find myself doing evil. That which I would do, I do not, and that which I would not, that do I. You say, he sounds like he's more confused than a termite in a yo-yo. <laughs> well, he's not confused. In fact, he's probably as sane as any man that's ever been except Jesus. He's just acknowledging the fact that he feels torn. He feels a schizophrenia on the inside. He feels that part of him is a Dr. Jekyll and the other's a Mr. Hyde. Part of him wants to uh, please God and the other part of him seems to complicate his holiest efforts. You know, I find it when I come to church. I find my mind wandering. Now, would I, for the world, let my mind wander in the presence of God? I wouldn't. I wish, I did, I wish it didn't happen, but I, inevitably, I struggle with it. Sometimes I find myself uh, thinking about the most foolish things when I'm praying. <laughs> You've been bowed in prayer, and before you know it, you're singing, Picked a fine time to leave me, Lucille. You say, I'm praying. Why am I singing that silly song? It happens, doesn't it? And you start reading the Bible, and you get sleepy. But you can watch a three-hour movie and be spellbound. You know, you won't ever lose contact with the television. You're, you're focused and in tune. But the, you read the Bible, it's like... Oh, what did I just read? Why do we have such trouble being holy? I want to be sanctified. I want to be a saint. That's what a saint is, somebody who's been sanctified. You ever noticed when the Bible writers talk to the Christians, they call them the saints in Christ Jesus. Paul addresses his letters, Ephesians, Colossians. He says, to the faithful in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. You're saints. Because there is a sense my friends, in which all of God's people have already been sanctified, made holy through what Jesus did for them on the cross. That's positional sanctification. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, Of God are you in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. According as is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Jesus is our sanctification. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, Paul says, he writes to the church at Corinth, which are sanctified in Christ Jesus. And the verb tense there is aorist. That describes snapshot or punctiliar action, like the shutter on a camera. It's instant and it's lasting. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, you are, through that act, forever sanctified. You're made holy. Let me ask you this. Here's an elderly saint that's been in the church for 60 years. They've been maturing and growing, and they've proven themselves faithful and stable. But here's a little child that's just uh, starting out in life. And let's say they both pass away at the same time. Which one gets into heaven first? The little child is not spiritually mature. The little child doesn't know what that aged saint knows. The little child hasn't been as useful in Christian service as that aged saint. Which one gets into heaven first? They both get into heaven at the same time. Do you know why? 
because their home in heaven does not depend on how much they've been sanctified in this world. Their home in heaven depends on Jesus Christ, who by one offering perfected forever them that are sanctified. By the which will, Hebrews 10, 11, we are sanctified by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And that's all you need in order to go to heaven. But I'll tell you, if you're going to be useful in God's service in this world, you need to grow in sanctification. You need to grow in Christian character. That's what our text is talking about. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. This verse is not talking about positional sanctification. God's truth, his word, is not a means or an instrument for your eternal holiness. That depends solely on the grace of God in Christ. But I'll tell you, God's word, the truth of the scriptures, is critical in spiritual growth, in spiritual progress. And let me give you one illustration as we close of this idea of practical sanctification. Spiritual growth. That's the way Peter described it. Grow in grace as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. I want to say like physical growth, spiritual growth is a process. Now, is your eternal salvation a process? No, my friends, it's an instantaneous gift of grace. It's not a process, but I'll tell you, discipleship, your Christian life, and you're becoming more and more like Jesus in your thinking and in your behavior, that is a process, like growth. You know, kids don't start out in the crib, and the next day you go in the room, and they're getting dressed and ready to go to work. There's got to be a process of development, right? They've got to learn to crawl, and then to walk and then to feed themselves, and then to dress themselves, and then to be responsible for controlling their attitude. You know, there are so many steps in child development. There's, it's a process. And I want to tell you the same is true in the Christian life. Sanctify them through thy truth. Here's the point. The more you and I are exposed to the truth, the more we're familiar with it, the more we ingest it, the more mature we will become. We're being sanctified by the truth. And here is an illustration of it in Mark 8, 22, and we'll close with this. Here is the only miracle Jesus ever performed in stages. Mark 8, 22 says Jesus came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man unto him and besought him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town, and when he had spit on his eyes, he put his hands upon him and asked him if he saw aught. And the man looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. And Jesus, after that, put his hands again upon his eyes and made him look up, and he was restored, and he saw every man clearly. This is a strange episode because it's the only miracle Jesus ever performed in stages. Now, what is the explanation for it? Somebody says, well, what happened here? is he, something just went wrong the first time. I mean, it's like, you know, trying to boot your computer and you push the button, but for some reason, some electrical charge or something on the circuit board didn't work just right and it starts flashing and you say, whew, shut it down, let's try it again. Then you reboot it. And Jesus tried to heal him and he, what did he see? He said, people look like trees walking. And you talk about a strange sight. He, I see men as trees walking. Now I've seen some pretty tall fellows that could pass for trees. You say, well, Jesus, just something went wrong. He didn't do it right the first time, and he had to redo it. No, nothing went wrong. I suggest that this miracle is performed in stages to teach us that it's not 
the same as the giving of spiritual life. You know, Lazarus was not raised from the dead in stages. He was raised instantly, immediately. Other people were healed instantly, but this man is cured, healed of his blindness in stages. It suggests to us, my friends, the doctrine of sanctification, that when it comes to seeing things clearly, that is a process. When it comes to growing in your understanding, that is a process. That's why when somebody joins the church, we don't say, can you recite the five cardinal tenets of grace? And can you explain the difference between infra and superlapsarianism? And can you uh, tell me the difference between the cessationist position and the, and the person who believes the sign gifts continue? Can you explain whether a marital relationship is egalitarian or complementarian? So you've got to get all these things correct. No, we don't say that, do we? We say, do you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Is your hope in Him? Is your trust in Him for your eternal salvation? That's all we ask them. Now, if that's all they know 40 years from now, then something's gone wrong. We, they, we want them to grow, right? And we want them to grow not only in what they know, but how they behave, how they control their temper and their thinking. And we want them to grow in how committed they are to the church, right? We want to see progress. And it's a lifetime thing, and you're going to have people at different stages in the church. But the point that I make this morning, my beloved, is that all spiritual growth is tied inseparably to God's truth as revealed in this book and expressed in the gospel of grace. Sanctify them through thy truth. Is the Bible important? Absolutely. <laughs> it is crucial, not just for the preacher, but for the people as well, for the pew as well. So read your Bibles, memorize scripture. You say, I can't remember anything, Brother Mike. Well, you can remember a lot of things if we got right down to brass tacks. There are probably a lot of questions I could ask you and you could rattle off the answer right off the top of your head. It's not wrong. Write it on a little post-it note or a three by five index card and just carry it in your pocket. And when you're sitting in traffic or you're standing in line or you're sitting at a doctor, spend that time trying to focus and memorize scripture. It's important. Meditate on it, familiarize yourself with it, read your Bibles, follow the Bible reading plan we gave you. You say, well, I, I haven't done it. Then start where we are and try to keep up. And then if you fall back, then skip to where we are and try to keep up. Any time you and I spend exposed to this book in church or in our homes, meditating on it, memorizing it, it will produce development, growth, maturity in our lives. Hey.